Thanks for joining us for another message from Southland Church. If you'd like any info on our church, check out our website at mysouthland.com. We're going to start a new series called Home Life, and, uh, and kind of what's the purpose sort of behind this series, and, uh, and one of the things that's behind it is, uh, one of the things we see in Christian culture today is so many Christians, just like our culture in general, uh, so many Christians uh, feeling, you know, stressed out and anxious would be one thing, but even those Christians that wouldn't identify with maybe stress and anxiety uh, so many uh, Christians that don't have any joy in serving the Lord. So many Christians where day to day, it's like you get home from work, it's this cycle. You come to church on a weekend and, and you go to cell and you kind of have some good intentions, oh, I'd love to grow. But in the reality of the day to day, you come home from work, you're exhausted, and all your good intentions that you had at cell or church, so you had these intentions, I'm going to grow in this, I'm going to grow in that, I'm going to grow in this, I'm going to do these things. And by the time you get home from a day of work, you're actually, you're just in a brain fog. You don't know what to do. And you end up in your old ruts. You just, I just got to zone out. You end up upset at your kids. You end up in front of a screen for hours and hours. And it's not always bad to be in front of a screen at all. But I'm just saying, it's just we get into this cycle and we never feel rested. And we never feel recharged. We have a weekend every week. Most of us in our jobs, you have a, a weekend. And you, yet after that weekend, you don't feel any more prepared for the week than you did at the end of the week before. And so this kind of joy of the Lord, this, this joy in life, this, you know, Christ, the fruit of the Spirit working in our lives, I feel like for many of us has just kind of, it's not that we don't want to be there, it's just that the day-to-day grind, life just kind of goes past and we don't, we don't know how to get out of that and to begin to grow. And that's really what this message series is going to be about. But before we get into all the practical stuff, because there's a ton of stuff the Bible has to say about that. And, and I really believe there is a Christian life, even in our modern society today, that can be lived, that is absolutely full of joy, and that is spirit-filled, and that can be full of love and joy and peace and patience, all those sorts of things. But before we get into even all of that, I really want to lay a foundation. This first message is a foundation for the rest of the series, because I feel like one of the big problems is many of us as Christians don't even know what am I supposed to be as a human being and as a Christian— what is my life even supposed to look like? And I think a lot of us have a, a whole bunch of, part of our problem is a whole bunch of false guilt and condemnation that we're actually trying to be something that God never called us to be. And a result, as a result, we always feel like we're not making it. We feel like we're falling short, which just drains us even more of having any desire to even try. And so in this first message, I just want to look at the question, what is the purpose why God even created human beings? What is our calling as human beings and as Christians, all right? So first of all, we're going to pray, and then we're going to dive into that uh, question. Would you bow your heads with me? Lord Jesus, we love you, and we come to your word today with hope, and we come into this series now in fall with hope, because you have said that you've given us everything we need for life and godliness. That's what Peter tells us in the New Testament. You've given us everything we need for life and godliness. Please change the wrong paradigms in our minds that keep us from living free. In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, amen. So, what is the purpose why God made human beings? Now, when I ask that question, I know there's a lot of, there's assumptions. I'm really dealing with centuries worth of Western Christian thought and assumptions because most of us 
uh, many of us, if you've been in church for any amount of time, have an immediate answer. Oh, I know the answer to that one. When I ask the question, what is the purpose for which God created us? Most of us have an answer. It's an answer that us preachers and many Christian authors have given that I myself have given. And I want to tell you in advance before I talk about it, it's not wrong. I'm not saying this is a false answer. I'm saying it's an oversimplified answer and that it's, there's probably better ways even to answer it than what we are doing. But most of us, if I ask the question, why did God create human beings? What were we made for? Most of us would give an answer to the, something to the effect of we were made to worship God. Okay, now by the way, I am not refuting that. You're going, we weren't made to worship God. Uh, I'm not refuting that. I I don't think it's a wrong answer. But did you know, as with many other Christian answers that we give, um, another one that you might give might be to give glory to God. Did you know that there is actually no verse in the Bible anywhere that says the reason why God made human beings was to give him glory or to worship him? Okay, in fact, there isn't a single verse anywhere in the Bible that says here is the purpose why God created people. Okay, now again, that doesn't mean, and I know, uh, you know, when, you know, we preachers give that answer. I know it's oversimplified, and sometimes you have to give oversimplified answers. That's okay. And it's not wrong. It's not sinful to say those things. But it's really interesting if we look at the Bible that that's not actually what the Bible says. Okay? So you say, well, how are we going to figure out what's the purpose for which God created human beings? Because if we don't know some, something about what he's calling us to be, how can we fix our home life to match up with something? Like, The reason many of us are where we are is because we've got a vision, a wrong vision for our lives. You say, well, how are we going to figure out a vision of what a human being is supposed to be? And the answer is, I think we have to go back to the beginning. There's always a storyline in the Bible. And if we go back to the beginning, we won't find a specific verse that says, here is the purpose for human beings. But we can draw out a number of very important things different purposes for why God made people. And the answers we're going to find are a lot less spiritual sounding than we were made for worship or to glorify him, even though I agree with those things. We were made to worship Jesus. There's no question. There's many verses in the Bible that tell us to sing praises to him. I love that, okay? And I love that we're supposed to bring God glory. So I'm not refuting those things. I'm just saying, let's actually look at what does the Bible actually say. So let's go to Genesis chapter 2, okay? And, uh, And let's kind of question some of our bedrock Christian assumptions and see what the Bible actually says. All right, so Genesis chapter 2, verse 5. When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground, and a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground, then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature." And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. Now, we're going to jump ahead just a couple of verses, and I want you to look at what happens next. But before we we look at what happens next, I'm going to already prime the pump a little bit, and I want you to see all the things that are not on this list. Okay? God puts, so he creates people. This is right at the beginning. So we're going to learn a lot here about what God wanted when he made people. And the first thing I want you to notice before we even get there, what you're going to notice that isn't there is it does not say, and God put Adam in the garden and said, I want you to spend hours every day praying to me and singing to me. Both prayer and singing are really important, and we see them in many places in the scripture. But I think some of us actually have this idea about God that he's actually needy. 
like, that, you know, God was sitting around in the Trinity, you know, just to kind of, you know, just to kind of use a, a, a little bit of a crass picture, but the Father and Jesus and the Holy Spirit are sitting there and you're going, we don't have enough people complimenting us. In fact, we have no people complimenting us, so let's make people to worship us, okay? And I want you to know that is not what's happening. God is not needy. He loves it when we praise him, and we should praise him, and it's part of the purpose for which he made it. There's no question. But he didn't create us because he was needy. He didn't put Adam in the garden and say, and now I've finally got someone to pray and fast and write poems that are amazing about me and how good I am. That's not what he says. Okay? He does not put Adam in the garden and say, I want you to do a bunch of ministry, even though that's a really important thing too. Some of you are going, oh. he's going to cancel out every good thing they've ever told us to do. Not at all. What I want to do in this series is I want to help you differentiate between the ends and a means to an end. You know, I have a, a van, a 2008 Toyota Sienna. I love it, okay? And we just went a long distance on our holidays again like we do every year to southern Ontario. And I fill that van up with gas when we go there because if I don't, it won't get us from point A to point B. But is the purpose of my van to be filled up with gas? Can you imagine if I bought my 2008 Sienna, filled it up with gas and then left it on the yard until the gas kind of evaporated and then filled it up again and said, wow, this thing is just amazing. <laughs> that would be me confusing a means to an end with the end. Because what is the purpose of our van? To take us from point A to point B. The purpose of the van is not to be filled with gas. Now, in order to fulfill the purpose, I must fill it with gas. The same is true of lots of our spiritual activity. And I want to show you that now in Genesis 2. We were not created to do spiritual things. We were created to be human beings. And some of those spiritual things are super important. And I am going to show you how important they are in this series. But if you confuse spiritual disciplines with an end as opposed to a means to an end, your life is going to be filled with a lot of condemnation. So why did God put Adam in the garden? The Lord God put the man and put him in the garden, took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to what? To work it and keep it. End of sentence. He says, surely there must be more to it than that. It's too mundane. Do you know what the word mundane means? Too down to earth, too kind of unepic. Like he made us to do great things, to glorify him, all this spiritual language. And Yes, those are all true. Ultimately, these things will glorify God. But that's not what it says in Genesis. It says God put him in the garden because God just liked creating the earth. He liked creating the universe. And he really liked creating human beings. And he wanted to make people in his image. And he said, I want you, first things, tasks he, give, he gives to Adam are neither of them would be in what we in the West would call spiritual because we have this dichotomy in our minds between certain things are spiritual and certain things are not spiritual. And the Hebrews had no categories like that. So God puts Adam in the garden and he says, two things I want you to do. I want you to work and I want you to take care of the earth. Now, I realized when I used the phrase take care of the earth in 2019, that has many connotations here in North America and the West where people basically worship the earth and it is not what he is talking about either, but certainly it does have the connotation of stewarding the earth, of using its resources in sustainable ways and getting the most out of it. Now, there's also some other things that God wants Adam to do, and these also are not what we would generally term spiritual. Okay, so the first two tasks God gives Adam are not fast and pray, read your Bible, or do ministry. It's work, because that's what we're, work. Use your talents and abilities. Take care of the earth, steward the earth, 
We see a third thing, just a couple verses later. Verse 18, then the Lord God said, it is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now, obviously in this passage, it goes on, and specifically in this passage, uh, it's talking about the beauty of marriage, that God made um, marriage, and marriage is a beautiful thing from God. Yes, yes, yes. But if we just step back and look at this phrase, isn't this phrase actually true for everyone, whether you're married or not? Like the statement, it is not good for man to be alone, isn't just about marriage. It's for all of us. I mean, you put a human being, if you isolate a human being, they've done all kinds of studies now, and psychologists today actually liken solitary confinement. When you take a human being and you just put them off on their own by themselves, the effects of solitary confinement are the same as torture, they say. Isn't that crazy? So it's actually not good. You know, thousands of years later, scientists actually confirm what this says. It's actually not good for people to be isolated. Now, that wasn't an accident, by the way. It's not like God made Adam, and then one of the unintended consequences was, whoops, he doesn't like being alone. God intended it because God could have made us solitary creatures. There's solitary creatures in the, in the animal kingdom. I mean, there's lots of solitary creatures. You can look them up on, you can Google them. Google knows everything. And, uh, um, but I mean, male polar bears and black rhinoceroses and many others spend 90 plus percent of their time alone. And if some other member of their species comes close, there's death and killing, okay? Unless it's at certain times of the year, okay? So... Um, that's just <laughs> propagation of the species, right? So, but anyway, but they're solitary creatures and they want to be alone. And God could have made us to be alone. He didn't make us to be alone though. He made us in Genesis for relationship. So that tells us something else about what we human beings were created for. We were created for work. We were created to be stewards of the earth. We were created for relationships. We haven't yet come across anything that we as Christians in the West would consider spiritual activities. And guess what? You won't anywhere in the book of Genesis. Those things are very important, I believe, for fulfilling our purpose as human beings. And we'll look at that in this series. But never confuse those as the reasons why God made people. Really, really important. Okay? So we see a few things. Now, I want you just to leave that on the shelf. Let's just put that on the shelf for just a few minutes. This whole idea that actually the purpose for which God made human beings is not some spiritual sounding thing, even though to say he made us for worship is not wrong. And certainly that is, you know, a reason he made us. And yes, he made us to glorify him. Sure, it's not wrong. But just always remember that those are things we Christians say. The Bible doesn't explicitly say them, even though they are true. When the Bible talks about why God made human beings, it's much more mundane. It's work. It's stewardship, it's relationship. Let's leave that on the shelf for just a second. Let's talk about worship for just a moment. I want to show you a side to what, how the Bible talks about worship that is different than how most of us view worship. And that doesn't mean our views of worship are all wrong. Yes, there are, there are many different ways. You can't define worship with just one definition. The Bible gives us a number of different definitions of worship. The Bible gives us a number of different definitions of worship and what worship can look like in different ways that we worship. I just want to show you one way in the Bible that most of us as Westerners never think about. Okay? Singing is super important. Oh, I mean, these songs just ministered to me today. Singing is important. Music is important. All that is important to worship. 
But there's another side to worship, and I'm, I'm going to show you a chapter here, Psalm 148, and I can show you a number of other verses. But I want to show you a side to worship that many of you have probably never thought about before. It says this in Psalm 148, verse 1. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord from the heavens. Praise him in the heights. Praise him, sun and moon. Praise him, all you shining stars. Now, I want to stop there for just one minute. How would the sun and the moon and the stars praise God? You ever thought about that? Like a lot of times we just kind of skim through the Bible and we never stop to think, what, what would that mean for the sun and the moon and the stars to praise God? They don't have a mouth. They don't have a brain. They can't form words to tell God verbally how amazing he is. So how do they, how do they praise God? Okay? If we keep reading the chapter, we'll find more of the same. And there's other passages in Scripture we could look at as well. I'm just showing you from one chapter here. Verse 7, Praise the Lord from the earth, you great sea creatures and all deeps, fire and hail, snow and mist, stormy wind fulfilling his word, mountains and all hills, fruit trees and all cedars, beasts and all livestock, creeping things and flying birds. So let me ask you something. How do mountains praise God? How do hills and trees praise God? How do creatures of the deep praise God? And the answer is, they don't, obviously they do it differently than how we just think of praise as being something I verbally say. It must be, there must be a different side to worship that's not just that. I'll tell you how a mountain worships God. A mountain worships God by being what God made it to be. A mountain praises God by being a mountain. And when you look at a mountain, you go, wow, that's majestic. The person who made that must be majestic. How does a lion worship God? You know, if a lion climbed into a tree and jumped out and you happened to, you know, and it happened to be on YouTube, there probably is a video of that on YouTube. But if a lion jumped out of a tree and tried to fly you would not be in awe, you would be laughing. I'd be like, that's the craziest thing I ever saw. So how does a lion worship God? A lion worships God by being a lion. You look at this creature with its teeth, its paws, its claws, its intelligence, and you watch it do what it was made to do. It's perfectly designed to hunt and kill. And when you watch it do what it was made to do, you go, wow, the one who engineered that thing must be incredible. A lion gives worship to God by being a lion. A mountain gives worship to God by being a mountain. You know, this last, uh, this summer, the past few weeks, in fact, past month or so, I have, you know, it's interesting that this verse says, creeping things. <laughs> every year, I don't know how many of you have this problem as well, but every single year, right around this time, although now, this year, it's actually starting to die off now. It was worse in August. But every year towards the end of summer, our house, our yard, our property is invaded by wave after wave of crickets. Uh, do you guys, does any of you know what I'm talking about? And they are intelligent in a cunning and evil sort of way. They can find their way in this year in our garage, so I have all our exercise stuff in the garage, so I like to go out there, and every morning I'd go out there, especially at the end of August after we were back from holidays, and one day, my worst day was, literally, there were a dozen different crickets in the garage. 
And it just drives me nuts. I can't exercise to them just knowing that they're comfortable in my garage. So I have two big cans arrayed. One of them is already empty, okay? And every morning I would go in there and it's like, you just kind of run around the garage and you, and, and you kill the, and I don't squish them. In fact, I told the kids, don't squish them because then you get the guts into the floor. So anyway, about a week ago, nasty little creatures, about a week ago, I have this epiphanal moment, this epiphany. And I've got the raid out, and I squirt this cricket, and he's flopping around. And of course, I, I don't want to squish him, so I just kind of let him die. <laughs> kind of a slow, painful death. And I'm watching him flip around, and also as I'm watching him, I'm like, uh, you know, it's incredible. Like, it, these really are amazingly designed things. Like, I hate them. But the, the way the legs are put together, the body, the way they are crickets, like no human being can design a robot that can think and do all the things a cricket can do in that kind of size. Like it's actually perfectly designed to be a cricket. Now, so I had this kind of moment with God. Of course, I've killed a bunch since then. I continue to kill them in my garage. They just can't be there. But, but I have this moment. I'm looking at this cricket, and I'm going, this cricket has a designer's fingerprints all over it. And all of nature is like that. A fish gives glory to God by being a fish. A mountain gives glory to God by being a mountain. So there's a whole side of this, though, that we often don't think about. How does a human being worship God? Yes, there's a whole bunch of other things we do. We sing, we praise God, we do all these things. But do you know one of the most foundational, fundamental ways that we please God and give worship to God is simply by being human? And I think that is a powerful truth that needs to be preached because many of us today are trying to be spiritual beings, but God never made you to be a spiritual being. He made you to be a human being. And when you read Genesis 1 and 2, it's not high and lofty, it's human. It's very earthy. Why did God make Adam? Well, he enjoyed making people and he wanted him to work and he wanted to take care of the earth. He wanted him to have relationships. He wanted him to build a family. He wanted him to do all these sorts of things. Those are very human things. Did you know that you are being spiritual when you are just being human? And that is such an important realization for us to get there. And I want to show you this. We're going to go back to Genesis 1 in just a moment. First, we're going to go to Romans 12. Actually, just before we get to Romans 12, because I, I, I have to really make this specific, because I feel like if I'm just general, a lot of this will go over your heads. So, for example, and we could talk about millions of examples, okay? But for example, what this means is, for those of you out there today who are managers, your job is you, you, you are a manager in a business somewhere. When a manager goes to work and brings order and clarity out of chaos, that is an act of worship. When an athlete who God created to be fast trains as hard as they can and does their best in a race to compete and be the fast human being God made them to be, that is, or I should say that can be, worship. Maybe it isn't automatically worship, you might, you know, but you can do that as an act of worship. A mother, you know, those of you who are mothers with young children, one of the things I often hear is this sort of angst 
from young mothers. It's like, I don't have time to do my devotions. You know, I snatched five minutes there. I snatched two minutes there. I'm just so exhausted. And you have many days where your husband comes home at the end of the day, and you're just like throwing the kids at him. He comes in the door. You better take him before I kill him. And your hair is like... And you just barely got supper on the table, but you didn't even feed yourself, and you stomped off in the room, and you felt like the worst person in the world, and you feel so unspiritual. Did you know God made moms and dads, he made us to multiply and have children, and he made you to be a mother, and he knows you're going to be exhausted. Did you know it's an act of worship to keep, or it can be an act of worship to keep your children alive and to love them as best you can? (laughs) And you feel like, that is the least spiritual day I ever have. I just feel exhausted. Yes, and you're being a mother, and God created you to be a mother, and that's okay. So there's passages in the, in the New Testament that actually, you know, we take a word a certain way, it's semantics, and we take it in a way it was never meant to be, and then we put this burden on ourselves, and we keep trying to be spiritual people instead of human people, which is what God made us to be. And Romans 12 verse 1 is a great example of this, but actually Romans 12 doesn't mean what many of us take it to mean. It actually means exactly what I'm talking about right now. Let's look at Romans chapter 12, verse 1 for just a moment before we go back to Genesis 1. Romans 12, verse 1 says this, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Now, the word sacrifice, Paul is using a picture there that made sense to the people in his day. There was still a temple. They were offering sacrifices at the temple, and it was a word picture that meant something to them. It's an analogy. But many of us actually miss the purpose of this analogy because of the word sacrifice. Most of us, when we hear the word sacrifice, what do we think of? We think of doing something really, really hard. So a sacrifice is, you know, like an athlete who's training for the Olympics, and they sacrifice, you know, going to the movies, and they sacrifice eating the food they want to eat because they have to eat healthy, and they have to get up early and train, and they, they put in all this effort, and they're in pain sometimes. Sometimes they train to the point of almost being sick, and we look at that as doing hard things. That is what a sacrifice is. And yes, it's true that being a living sacrifice will sometimes mean doing hard things for Jesus. There's no question. But here's the thing. When we preachers preach this verse, here's how most of us take this verse, I know, and that is this. Whenever a preacher preaches this verse, We all take it as, I need to go home now and do something hard for God. Just automatically do something hard for God. Now, the thing is, when God made Adam, did he put him in a garden and say, now do something hard for me. I made you to like food. I want you to fast from it. Okay? Now, fasting has a really important place in this broken world as part of the fuel to get us where we need to be. But God didn't create us too fast. And so we, we look at this. So let's say I preached, you know, last year maybe, let's say I preached a message on Romans 12 verse 1, and a bunch of people in here go, I need to do something hard for God. So I'm going to do this year, I'm going to do less of this, less of this play, less of this fun stuff, and more prayer and ministry. Well, very, fine. That actually might be something God's calling you to. Absolutely. Now, the next year, let's say I preach on the verse again, and the same people go, oh, oh, i got to sacrifice even more. So I'm going to up the ante even more. Last year, I gave up this and this and this. Now, on top of that, I'm going to give up this, 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 and this, and I'm going to do this, this, and this, and this even more. And we, we pick out of those spiritual categories, and we do more of those and less of these. 
And we think that's automatically what this verse means. But you know, that is not what this verse means. Yes, we are sometimes called to do things that will be hard for God. Usually it involves giving up things that aren't good for us. But by definition, it's not keep doing more and more spiritual things and less and less human things. God doesn't want you to be a spiritual being. He wants you to be a human being. So when it says, I want you to be a living sacrifice, what he's talking about there is worship is a lot more than just singing. It is that, and we need to do that as part of a worship. But worship is a lot more than singing. Worship is something that's supposed to be your whole life. And being human means that there are distinct portions to your life. There are relationships. There's work. There's definitely work. God made Adam to work. But there's also definitely rest, because who rested on the seventh day? And there's also play. I'm going to show you that in Genesis 2. So if we look at kind of just some basic categories of what it means to be human, to work, to play, to rest, to do relationships. When we read verses like this, we usually tend to go, what God really wants is for me not to rest or to play. He just wants me to work and love people. And that is not what God's saying. He's saying, bring Jesus into all the elements of what it means to be a human being. A human being doesn't stop resting. You wouldn't be a human being, then you'd be a robot. Some of you are trying to be robots. I just work, 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 work. I have productivity every moment of my day. It's such a wonderful desire you have, and you'll never achieve it because you're not a robot. And God didn't make you to be a robot, and you don't properly reflect his image when you try to be anything other than a human being. And human beings must have work. Now, we're going to talk about the brokenness there, but there's work, and there's rest, and there's play, and there's relationships. Being a living sacrifice doesn't mean cutting out parts of being human to do more of something. It means bringing Jesus into each of these areas. A living sacrifice means Jesus in your rest, Jesus in your play, Jesus in your work, Jesus in your relationships. And not in weird spiritual ways either, but we're going to look at that. Well, you know what? Actually, let me just... I don't really have time for this, but I'll just... I'll just do it anyway. I heard someone say yes, so I'll just take that as encouragement. For example, let, let, me, let me just use a very practical example. We could literally look at a thousand of these. I want to use this one. This one is, because this, this is something I'm passionate about. If you're a young family out there, maybe something like this will speak to you. To all of us, it'll speak some general principles. But you might think, for example, like let's say, some of you might think, because we have our categories of spiritual, not spiritual. And you might be someone here today that you have subconsciously this idea, if I would ever listen to Jesus, I know one of the things he would tell me is I shouldn't take vacation. I should use that money and that time to minister instead. Now, by the way, there, there have been people that have been called to do that, yes. Are there times when God calls us to do some extreme things? Absolutely, no question. But there's a lot of us that might actually think that's just the default. Like, God always takes away the fun stuff and gives us the hard stuff. But this, again, comes from a picture that is wrong. Did you know who created rest and who created the family? Did Satan create the family or did God create the family? God did you know that when you are a family together, just the act of being a family is an act of spiritual warfare? It's an act of having the image of God here on the earth? I'm thinking of something that happened two summers ago. Every year, uh, we take our kids on a vacation. You know about that. We rent a cottage in Tobermory. We just love it. Two years ago, we spent a, 
two extra days. Just before we went to Tobomori, we spent two days in Toronto. It's just a couple hours away. I wanted to show kids some of the sights there and all this sort of stuff. So we're, we're in a food court at a really busy mall in Toronto. And we're grabbing, I think it was kind of a late supper lunch kind of thing. Or a late, late supper lunch, late lunch supper thing, whatever. Sometime in the day, we're there to get food. So kids are always hungry. And uh, so you know how it is, right? So LaDawn was off getting something actually healthy, her and Joy, and, and me and the rest of the kids are just pumped about McDonald's. And so I'm, we're working our way towards a table. I'm just trying to make sure Boaz doesn't wander off with some complete stranger and don't, you know, don't drop your fries all over the floor and certainly don't eat them off this floor, okay? And you just kind of get them all to a table and then you sit down and we're having fun. We're by no means, are we, by the way, before I even share this story, let me just tell you, this message is brought to you by my family is not perfect. Like, I have four kids, and if you had a video camera 24-7 in our house, that would be really weird and creepy, but you would see probably a spat or two every single day. We have yet to, 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 to achieve perfection, okay? But nonetheless, we are a family that loves each other, even though we fight. So we're at McDonald's, and we're having a, a good time, and I don't notice, you know, they've got these long benches. I don't notice there's an elderly lady just down there, like, just down there. I don't notice there are so many people in the thing. She's by herself just eating at a little, like, single table. And I'm just with the kids. And at a certain point, as we're eating and having fun, and I, we prayed for the meal and all sort of stuff, this, this elderly lady kind of scooches over and leans in, and she says, you've got a really wonderful family. And I said, well, I mean, you caught us at a good time. Okay, like, <laughs> thank you. It's not always like this, but yeah, thank you. And uh, she said, and then she said something interesting. She said, she had a big smile on her face. She said, you don't often see anymore these days. You don't often see parents just with their kids and laughing and talking, all sort of stuff. I said, yeah, I said, that's true, actually. And then she proceeded to kind of just sit right there on the edge. She kind of just joined in our bubble, and she just kind of joined our family <laughs> there. It was really neat. So I had to tell her I was a pastor and all sort of stuff. And she had so much joy. When we left, we said goodbye to her, and she had so much joy. And why did she have that joy? Okay? Why did this Elderly lady by herself have joy. She wasn't witnessing us doing anything spiritual. She was just witnessing us eat junk food as a family together. But you know what happened? A mountain worships God by being a mountain. Who made families? When a family is a family and there's laughter and love, I know it's not always perfect. You don't have to be perfect. But when an imperfect family exhibits some love and some laughter, that is the image and goodness of God on the earth. What's more spiritual than that? God is here. Right? There is a good God out there that made all of this. And when you invest in an affordable vacation, <laughs> and you invest in your children, and you build memories that will last for life, don't ever feel guilty about that. That is ministry. It is. Now, we don't only hang out with our families to the exclusion of all others. There's all kinds of extremes, and we'll talk about some of those things in this message. But when you are human, you worship God. And I want to just emphasize that if we go back to Genesis 1, I want to just show you this, and not to cut out some things here yet, no doubt, but. So God created man in his own image, in the image of God he created him. I could go on a whole thing there of what the image of God meant to people in ancient times. We'll just leave that for now. Male and female, he created them. And I want you to notice again how mundane his mission statement is to humanity. 
And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply. You know, go have families, go have relationships. Be fruitful and multiply. That's his mission statement. Don't go, don't go and be spiritual. Be fruitful and multiply. Go be human. Go be people. Go build cities and towns and civilizations and culture. Fill the earth with humanity. That's why he made us. Fill the earth and subdue it. Subdue there is not in the sense of pillage the earth until it's, you know, devoid of anything good. It's more take care of it, like what he says to Adam with the garden. And have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Now we skip ahead two verses. Look at verse 31. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. As Christians, we've got this Greek mindset. It's rooted 23, 2400 years ago in the thinking of some smart guys named Plato and Aristotle who had no idea anything about God. And we've come to think that the earthiness is too mundane, that God has got some bigger, more spiritual calling on our lives. And actually what God wants you to do is, yes, love him. And we're going to pray and read our Bibles, but there's a reason why we do that. Not because we're fulfilling some purpose, but because those are the things that fuel us to do some of the things he really wants us to do, which is to show the world how amazing Jesus is in business, in sport, in rest, in play, in music, in all of that. Super, super important. Now, once your eyes are open to this truth, a lot of things come alive in Genesis, okay? For example, Genesis 4, I want to just read you this little section that a lot of us, this is one of those sections in Genesis, one of many, where people read it and they go, why on earth am I reading this for my devotions? You know, Christians, I think we sometimes ask God, like, why did you put this in here? And God goes, I wrote this book 3,500 years ago. I didn't have your little nifty 2019 Canadian devotions just all in mind. I had kind of the world. But anyway, God's not tame, right? So we encounter this book on his terms. Anyway, Genesis 4 says this. Cain knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Enoch when he built a city. He called the name of the city after, his name, uh, after the name of his son Enoch. Now, two things here. First of all, this is one of those passages where we go, why am I reading about this? And number two, like we do with so much of the rest of Genesis, we approach these Genesis texts with modern questions that Moses and the ancient Israelites were not thinking of, nor were they concerned to answer. And when we ask these wrong quick questions, we actually miss the whole point of what Moses is trying to say by the power of the Spirit. So I'll tell you the question many of us have asked, if not most of us, at some point we read this verse, is we read that and we go, where did all the people come from? How many of you asked that question? Wow. I thought there would be more of you. Some of you are timid. Because you read that and you go, wait a minute, Adam and Eve, then there's Cain, and Cain's building a city. Because I'll tell you a question that some of you are afraid, and I won't even ask you to raise your hands on this one, but some of you definitely, when you read this, go, they were having babies with their sisters. <laughs> it's true. Christians debate about that, and we go, oh, gross. And I've been on a two-minute rabbit trail on this because we have modern questions, and that is not what Moses is talking about here. He's not even thinking about it. By the way, Lots of great Christian thinkers, theologians, scientists. There are very important things about this text. If you want to answer those kind of questions, which Moses is not interested in, there are lots of wonderful things. I and mean, we can't say for sure, but there are lots of 
wonderful explanations for this text that do not involve them having to be brother and sister having babies. Did you know that? So now you can continue to believe that. I'm not even going to talk about the other ones because it's not for sure. We don't need to. But the point of the matter is we ask the wrong questions. Why would this be in the, in the Bible here? Moses isn't concerned with population genetics or how all that exactly happened. You know what he's concerned with? God made human beings and he said, multiply and fill the earth. And Moses is recording here, so Cain went out and built the first city. You know what that is? It's actually a good thing. It's human beings being human. Now, there's a lot of brokenness woven into Genesis 4. I'm going to talk about that in just a moment. And that brokenness, there's a sadness that's woven into all this. But the reason Moses cares to write about this is because Moses has a different view of the world than we do, that there's certain things, like when I go to work, or like if you're an engineer, or a politician, or an athlete, and we think, when I go and do that stuff, that's about me. But when I do my devotions or go to church, that's about God. Moses didn't have that idea. He thinks when you go out and you do politics or you do engineering or you do managing or you do banking or you do mothering, all of those are part of God's mission statement to humanity. This is why I made you. I made you to populate the earth. I made you to be human. I love that. That's what God said. It's very good. So Cain went out and built a city. And Moses is going, yeah, that's the first one. That's an important point. Because God wanted us to make cities. He wanted us to spread out. He wanted us to organize things. Number two, he goes on. A couple more verses there. Ada bore Je uh, Jabal. He was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. Moses is talking about the birth of farming. Why would he talk about the birth of farming? Because in Genesis, farming is spiritual. You go out to your barns and you use the best science available and the best techniques available and you manage your employees right to get the best products available, whether it be dairy or poultry or hogs or grain or whatever it is, that is intensely spiritual to God. That's what he made you to do. Then it says this, next verse, his brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of all those who played the lyre and the pipe. Music! Now we get something that's totally not even productive. Okay? Right? Lyre and a pipe. First guys are sitting around with a Pepsi bottle, right? Ooh, ooh, I made a sound, and now they're making music. <laughs> right? And Moses writes this down. He said, that's important. Because human beings are not robots. You weren't made to work, 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 work. You were not made to be productive every moment of every day. You were not be made to be productive even every day of the week. You were made to be productive, and then you were made to stop and enjoy. You were made to play. You were made to enjoy music, not because it necessarily accomplishes anything, but just for the sake of enjoying it. I listened to a song. I came across a song some time ago. Uh, I don't listen to a lot of classical, but when I do, you know, sometimes you just hit one of these, and, and, and his name is Andre Ryu. Some of you have heard of him. Some of you have not. But he's a famous composer, violinist from uh, Europe, and uh, he does this rendition of Amazing Grace. You can try and look it up later. It's kind of obscure. But if you get the right one, the one I listen to, it's got this, it's got these, it's a live performance, it's got bagpipes, and it's Amazing Grace, and there's absolutely no words. I stumbled on it some time ago, I listened to it, and the music, it's about two and a half minutes long, the music was so beautiful, I felt like I was touching heaven, I felt like I was experiencing God, but there's no words. I don't even know if this composer is a Christian. It's just the live music, and it is beautiful. So breathtakingly beautiful that I had a spiritual experience just listening to it. I had it cranked in my headphones. I listened to it a few times over. I'm like, this is beauty. And I thought to myself, there must be a God because 
how could someone make something so beautiful? And how can I enjoy something so beautiful? There must be a God. Evolution and blind materialism does not explain beauty. Does that make sense? Then it goes on to say, Zilla also bore Tubal Cain. He was a forger of all instruments of bronze and iron. We have metallurgy. We have engineering. We have inventing. When we invent games, when we invent new techniques to be more productive, when we invent new ways of doing things and new technology, all of that, now it can be corrupted and used for bad, but all of that is deeply human. And if it's deeply human, it's made, that means it's in the image of God. And if it's in the image of God and it's deeply human, it means that's what he loves. Now, there's a sadness on all of this. You see in the next verse, Lamech said to his wives, first of all, it's plural. We're just two chapters remained, you know, removed from God said, a man shall leave his wife, singular. And already we have brokenness in the whole system. We have plural wives, we have killing, we have revenge. He says, Ada and Zillah, hear my voice. You wives of Lamech, listen to what I say. I've killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. So we have revenge, we have killing. So the human project is broken. Humanity, the image of God is broken. If I put up those four categories, just basic, this isn't the only way to do this, but just kind of four general categories of human life up there, you know, work, uh, play, rest, and relationships. These things were all made, Genesis 1, very good. But each of these things has now been broken. Work has been broken. There's people who overwork. There's people who underwork. Both fail to bear the image of God correctly. There's people who go to work and they work out of wrong motives. They work out of greed or they work in dishonesty. People go to work and they cuss each other out. They put each other down, even though Jesus said in Matthew 5, in fact, even Christians do this, even though Jesus said in Matthew 5, if you call someone a fool, you're in danger of the fires of hell. Jesus said, you don't cut people down because I love people. Be truthful, yes. It doesn't mean that you're a pushover at work, but be truthful, but just calling people names and cutting them down, that's the farthest thing from being Christian you can imagine. So work is broken. Play is broken. Some people play too much. Some people don't play at all. A lot of people play at things that are immoral and debauched. Rest, rest is broken. I'm convinced that very few people today know how to rest. So I said it's an epidemic. You'd think if you had a weekend every week, God rested on the seventh day. You were made to rest weekly. And you would think if you had a weekend to rest every week, Rest means you come back recharged, you start Monday again, ready to go. How many people today, including Christians, start Monday ready to go? Most of us dread work, or many people do. I don't, I feel lucky, I love my job, but many people, so we don't know how to rest. We know how to zone out in front of a screen. Nothing wrong. You know what, sometimes when you're exhausted, the best thing you can do is plop in a movie. Sometimes. But if the only thing you know how to stop is just to be on a screen, it ends up isolating you in relationships, and it doesn't recharge you. I know people who spend hours and hours and hours every weekend and every evening on screens, and they're never energetic anyway. They haven't rested. They haven't recharged spiritually, emotionally, or mentally, and our relationships are broken. That's what this series is about, is... First of all, getting a vision for what it means to be human. 
But I want to finish with a passage here. Because I want to show you that Jesus has actually given us a job in all of this. Colossians 1, 19 to 20. For in him, it's Jesus, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things. I want you just to pay attention to all things there for just a moment. I want you to notice there that it does not say he just wants to reconcile all people. That's what most of us Christians think. He wants to reconcile all people. He does. All people is in all things. But I want you to notice that God's vision is bigger than just reconciling all people. He wants to reconcile all things to himself. That's a bigger vision than just people. You know what? Most of us evangelicals have got this picture of God that is too small and what he wants to do on the earth. We think that all God wants is millions and millions of people to just say a prayer and be saved and go to church. That's a great start, and God loves when people get saved. Too many Western Christians have gotten saved, though, and that's it. They just got saved. Jesus wants to reconcile all things. You know what he wants to reconcile? He wants to reconcile our, our culture, our civilization. He wants to reconcile work and play and rest and relationships. He doesn't want a bunch of people to get, just get saved. He wants a bunch of people transformed and then to turn around and make the world a better place, make their family a better place, make their home a better place, make their workplace a better place. He wants to reconcile all things. Now, one more verse, because it's, it's so good. Okay, 2 Corinthians 5. I'm ending here. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. See, it's about transformation, not just salvation. Salvation is the start of something that's meant to be you are changed. But now look at this. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself. And now what did he do? Gave us the ministry of reconciliation. He put Adam in the garden and said, take care of the garden. You know what he does now? He puts the Holy Spirit in us and he gives us the ministry of reconciliation. He's put us in the garden, which is our culture. And he said, work it. Make it better. Make the hospitals better places. Make the schools better places. Make the football team better place. Make the hockey arena a better place. Make every place a better place in the name of Jesus for the glory of Jesus. He's given us the ministry of reconciliation. But many of us aren't living in there and we just can't because we just come home from every day and we're in a cycle of, I'm exhausted, screen. I'm still exhausted, screen. And God's got a much bigger, more joy-filled purpose for your life. He wants you to be a living sacrifice. I want you to bow your heads with me and close your eyes. And let's just take a moment Lord Jesus what might you be saying to us this morning when the music all is stripped away and I simply come longing just to bring something that's a word that will bless your heart I'll bring you more than a 
song for a song in itself it's not what you have required you search much deeper within through the way things appear you're looking into my heart i'm constantly sing with us Thank you, Jesus, for your love for us. We want to live pleasing lives to you and be a light to this town and this province and this country and the world. In your name we pray. And all God's people said, amen. Amen. You're dismissed.